Thank you. All right. We're going to uh, step into this chapter here. And I'm going to retell the story as well a little bit, so uh, we'll get some review of it. But, uh, you know, Nehemiah is often a book that is preached through when a church is going through a building project. And, and for obvious reasons, uh, it, it's so applicable. But chapter 5 is an important reminder for any church that is going through the effort and the expense and the time and the attention that is demanded from going through a building project. Uh, chapter 5 is a reminder to not lose sight of those among you in need while you are focusing so intently on something like a building project. And it sort of draws our attention back to some of those core things that matter in a fellowship of people. So again, uh, let's quickly jump into this story. Nehemiah has left his uh, position as the cupbearer of the king of Persia, and he has traveled about 1,300 or so kilometers from Persia to Jerusalem which is his ancestral home. And the reason for this, of course, is that God has called him. And, and even more so, God has made a way for him to come and to rally the Jews living in and around the area of Jerusalem to rebuild the city's walls and the gates that had been laid in ruin for some 130 to 140 years. And not just the walls. That's not the only thing that needed rebuilding. It was also the people and their faith and their courage and their hope that desperately needed rebuilding right along with the wall. And in chapter 3, we saw the people begin to work on the wall. They started working side by side, like almost everybody working shoulder to shoulder on that wall. And there was this great level of accountability as everyone sort of built the section of wall right out in front of their own house. People from other towns came and helped. It was an amazing progress that's starting to take place. And it's truly one of those pictures of, of many hands making light work. And then in chapter 4, uh, we saw last week that there was opposition that rose up against them. And it was in the form of their enemies, their detractors, those naysayers, those who would actually profit from their failure should they fail, those who have taken advantage of them in their weakness in the past. And they actually hatched a plot to uh, attack the workers while they were working on the wall and kill them. And Nehemiah catches wind of the, of, the, of the plot, and then they start this practice from then on of working with people, working as well as guarding. And some people even worked with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. And in that way, the work carried on. And we now come to chapter 5, and the completion of this massive project is actually beginning to look like a reality. It's happening. It's actually happening. The, the light is sort of beginning to loom now at the end of this incredibly long tunnel that these walls have laid in ruin for. And the Jews even themselves perhaps are beginning to believe that it's going to happen. We're, we're doing it. The impossible is becoming possible. And then, <laughs> and then, yet another issue emerges that threatens to derail the whole building project. And, and not just the whole building project, but the whole faith and unity of the community. And this threat is actually generated from within the walls, right there from among the community and the people. A number, so here's, I'm going to, sort of review the story a little bit. A number of the wealthy and the nobles among the people have been exploiting 
the poor workers for their own personal benefit. You see, the building of the wall took many months and many of the workers who had committed to this work had actually left their farmlands and their occupations to come and to pour into, to set everything aside and to pour into this project to get it done. They had sacrificed, in a sense, in, essentially they had sacrificed their incomes in order to contribute in this kind of a way. And to make matters worse, there was actually a regional famine that was taking place at that time, and food, of course, was scarce. And expensive, that's what happens in a famine, is food also becomes very expensive. And the Persian king, he still required his taxes to be paid, regardless of whether or not there was a famine, or whether or not people were pouring time into building the wall. And those taxes were expensive. So many of the people, particularly the working class, the farming class, they were finding themselves in increasingly uh, desperate need of both food and finances. And this is where the, the nobles came in. The nobles, the leaders in the community, they began to lend money to those in need so that they could purchase food and pay their taxes and keep their farms running. Now, that might sound like a helpful thing at first, and it probably did to the people who were in need as well. But here's the thing. These nobles were also charging incredibly high interest rates, and, and they were demanding the farms be mortgaged, and even the, the, the lands be turned over to them when debts could not be paid. And in some cases, even the children of those who were indebted were taken in as indentured servants and slaves uh, to pay off overdue loans. And plain and simply, these people were taking advantage. These nobles were taking advantage of the situation. They were exploiting the misfortune of their own people, of their, of their own people who were sacrificing their time to help rebuild the city. And they were doing so for their own profit. And the desperate plea that we see in verse 5, if you look at that, it's, it's almost painful to hear. These, these, these people, they cry out, they say, now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. They're saying, like, our, you know, we're the same people. We're kin. And our children are as their children. You know, they have children. We have children. We're all like a family. And, and yet, he, they go on to say, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. And this is by those, you know, sold off into to slavery to uh, those nobles in order to repay the debts. And then they they continue by saying, for, for other men, and they're talking about those nobles, have our fields, and they have our vineyards. And this, is, this is essentially a nightmare for any parent, isn't it? It's, you come into these circumstances where you can't care for your family anymore, and you're losing it. You're losing your family. In this case, very literally, losing their family even into slavery. And sadly, uh, here's the thing I just want to focus on for a moment. Sadly, exploitation and injustice and in oppression and pain and suffering like this, you know, very much like this, just this injustice of it is not an uncommon event in our world even today. And I want to take the time to just share with you one particular social injustice that absolutely breaks my heart. So here it is, and it's shocking. I'm going to warn you, this, this is shocking. In our world, approximately 5.6 million children under the age of five die every year. Every year! 
The, the number varies a little bit, but it's pretty consistently around that. One or 5.6 million children under the age of five every year. That's 15,000 children a day. That's 625 per hour, every hour of every day. That is almost 10 and a half deaths of children under five every minute due to starvation. Malnutrition and starvation alone. During the course of my sermon alone, depending upon how long-winded I am, somewhere between four and 500 children under the age of five will die of starvation. And the majority of them in the continent of Africa. And at the same time, at the very same time that this is happening, about two billion people in our world are struggling with the challenges of being grossly overweight and obese. How does that happen? How does that happen? There is actually more than enough food to feed everybody well in our world with much left over. The problem is we don't, for all kinds of reasons, it doesn't get shared, that food. We, we could literally save those 5.6 million children every year just with what we throw away in North America in terms of food. It is almost unbelievable to hear facts like that, but they're true. And I'm going to now share with you, just, just so that this isn't some great huge number that's almost unrelatable, I'm actually going to share with you the story of just one of those children and the man who photographed that children. Here is the picture. In the, year, uh, in the early 1990s, uh, photographer Ken Carter was a freelance photographer from South Africa. Uh, he was a member of a group of photographers and journalists that were known as the Bang Bang Club. It was a group of uh, bold photographers who definitely stepped into harm's way to chronicle many of the desperate and heartbreaking events that were taking place both in Africa and Southeast Asia in the early uh, 1990s. In 1993, Carter flew with some other journalists to Sudan to photograph the effects of the famine that was raging that country during that time, largely due to war. After an exhausting day of both traveling and photographing, <laughs> photographing at, a, at a food distribution center in the village of Ayod, Carter uh, sort of wandered off after his day of work out towards the bush. And on his walk, he heard the sound of a whimpering child. And when he came across was this child here, this emancipated toddler who had collapsed trying to get to the food center, the feeding center. And as he took the child's photo, a vulture landed behind the child, a vulture that was stalking it and waiting for its opportunity. Carter explains that journalists had been sternly warned not to touch hunger victims because of the ease of transmission of disease to them in their emancipated state, emancipated state. Carter grabbed, or Carter guarded the child for about 20 minutes from the scavenger bird and then tried to chase the creature away repeatedly. <laughs> and he watched as the child continued to struggle towards the center where she was uh, eventually picked up by an aid worker. 
After that experience, Carter, who had children of his own, was emotionally broken. He writes that he went and sat under a tree, lit a cigarette, talked to God, and wept. The New York Times, a year later, or not even a year later, ran his picture along with his story, um, and actually, surprisingly, he was heavily criticized for not doing more to actually help the child in the moment rather than just photographing the child. He even received death threats. Carter actually received the Pulitzer Prize for his picture. It was named the picture of the year, uh, the photojournal picture of the year in 1994. And then four months after receiving his Pulitzer Prize, Carter took his own life, leaving a note behind that said, I am haunted by the vivid memories of killing and corpses and anger and pain. And in the time that it took me to tell that story, 15 more children under the age of five died of starvation. And perhaps the message somewhere in here for us is that we should all spend some time sitting under a tree, thinking about these things, talking with God, and weeping at least a bit over this. I actually keep this photo along with all of my other photos in my camera, or in my phone. I keep it there not because I look at it a lot, but I keep it there because I look at it occasionally. It's hard to look at. It's painful to look at, but it gives me perspective. It reminds me of some of the things in this world that I need to be aware of that I'd frankly be more comfortable if I turned a blind eye to. But I... I mustn't. I mustn't. And yeah, sometimes this photo causes me to sit down and weep for a period, but that is probably a very appropriate thing to do. Getting back to our passage now, we'll move ahead beyond the picture here. Um, back to the passage. In verse 6, we're told that when Nehemiah heard of the dire circumstances and the injustices and the pain and the predicament of the workers and their families and their daughters and their children being enslaved. It says, he says, I was very angry, <laughs> right? I was very angry when I heard their outcry. And, and that's the right response. Clearly, this was a righteous form of anger. You know, anger itself isn't always wrong. Sometimes it's very much the right and the correct emotion for a particular situation. And in, it's, it's really what we do with the anger that can lead to wrong and even to sin. And Paul warns us, he says, do not sin in your anger. He doesn't say don't ever be angry because sometimes you must be angry. It's the right response. But be careful that that doesn't spin you off from your anger and emotion into, into sinful reactions. That can be the tricky thing about anger. Anger is such a volatile emotion. It can so easily carry us away into sinful reactions. But look at what Nehemiah does with his anger. This is how to prevent anger from carrying us away into regrettable actions. In verse 7, it, it starts by saying, Nehemiah starts by saying, in his anger, once he feels this emotion of anger, he says, I took counsel with myself. That's what he does when he feels this emotion of anger. I took counsel with myself. Nehemiah didn't just go with the first emotional impulse that he had. He paused. He thought. He 
processed. He probably prayed. He tempered his anger. He didn't just want to respond by punishing injustice. He actually wanted to reform it and to become a redemptive agent of change in the midst of it. Nehemiah was right to get angry, but he shows great wisdom in not allowing the anger to dictate his actions. He took counsel with himself, and in the end he was able to act from not just the anger, but from also a level of compassion and love and desire for restoration. So with that self sort of counsel on his heart, Nehemiah actually gathers the people together. (laughs) He gathers the people together in this great assembly. It's like that's all the people available that he could pull together. He gathers them together to address this issue. And in front of everyone, he calmly and truthfully discloses the issue before everyone. Right? He throws it right out there. He shines light on it before everyone. And in doing that, he confronts the leading nobles before everyone with their acts of injustice. He appeals to their sense of brotherhood as common people who are working together and and who should look out for each other. He appeals to their conscience by clearly revealing that what they're doing is wrong. No, he calls it right out. He says, what you're doing is wrong. Now, here's the thing is, I'm sure that these people knew that what they were doing was wrong. I don't think that was a secret. They knew it. But there is nothing like revealing those actions before everybody to help hold someone to a level of conviction and account and remorse for it. You see, they can't really hide it any longer. They can't sort of do it behind the scenes any longer. You know, they, they can't be done covertly. You know, and they can't encourage other people to sort of turn a blind eye to it anymore. It's now out in the open with all the, the, the clarity of daylight, piercing light, shining upon it, revealing the injustice and the horror of it all, and the fact that this was done for their own personal gain. Nehemiah then also goes on to appeal before the people, to his own personal example as well. I mean, he has lent money to people as well, but he's charged no interest, no user fee. There's actually a a, a law amongst the Jewish people that they were not to do that for, for their brethren. And Nehemiah is, you see, the point is, I think he reveals that to let them know that he's not being hypocritical. He's not a hypocrite in this. And this is what actually gives him the authority to tackle the situation is that he wasn't in on it. He actually is standing on higher moral ground. And that's important if he's going to deal with this issue before the whole community. And finally, he calls them to just do the right thing. Right? That's Nehemiah's final and simple appeal. Come on, you guys. Do the right thing. And in verse 11, he tells them, exactly what the right thing is. He says, return to them this very day. <laughs> the immediacy of that. Now, do it now. This Don't wait till tomorrow or next month. Do it this very day. Return to them their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their homes, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been extracting from them. 
So you see, even though Nehemiah is angry, he's also giving these people a way back, right? A way out. He's giving, frankly, he's giving the whole community a way back to restoration and redemption. That's important. It's a strong speech that Nehemiah gives, but it's not simply a condemning one. There's hope in it. There's there's a way forward in it. And in verse 12, the nobles and the leaders uh, who were abusing the workers, they respond well. They respond well. And, And they say, we will. We'll do it, Nehemiah. We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Then uh, they turn away from their exploitive actions. They make their restitutions. And they promise not to do it again. And just to solidify their promise, Nehemiah actually then pronounces this kind of interesting sort of warning or almost a curse, really, upon any of them who might break their promise here. And he does something dramatic. He takes his clothes, his cloak, and he shakes it. He, like he's shaking the dust out of it, right? And then, and then he, he simply says very dramatically that God will, will, will so shake you off and shake you out and shake out from you and your homes, your possessions, and the things that you own if you break your promise. What you've done to them, it's going to be done to you. And the response of the people is very interesting here. I'm sure at this point that the nobles and the leaders are somewhat humbled, right? Obviously, they're somewhat humbled. But look at the people. The people, they all come together and they shout, Amen! (laughs) And they praise God. There's just this obvious sense of relief. There's this obvious sense of being unburdened and hope that is now coming. And the other thing that I don't want us to miss here is that this idea that justice being done is something worthy of praise to God. That is an act of worship and praise before God when justice is being done in the name of God and for the cause of God. And at the end of the chapter, Nehemiah explains how he is now compelled to go even further. This is the interesting thing to me. is now Nehemiah, who's done no wrong, uh, in fact, who's done right, he is actually now going to extend himself even farther. You see, the nobles are no longer going to charge interest rates. They're no longer going to take over farms as collateral and send children into servitude. But you know what else that means? That probably also means that they're not going to lend money anymore either. <laughs> That's probably what that means too, that a lot of them just aren't going to lend money now either. And the taxes still must be paid. The famine still continues. Financial destitution still exists. And here is where Nehemiah goes the incredible extra distance. As governor, and Nehemiah was appointed governor of the region, Nehemiah relinquishes all right to taxes collected for, for the governor. He just lets it all go, and he's not going to collect those. And he's going to run and rule the region essentially out of his own pocket is what he's going to do. And in addition to that, Nehemiah... Now, the the Persian king is still going to want his taxes, but Nehemiah is relinquishing all of his. 
And in addition to that, Nehemiah also works daily along with his whole household alongside the labor of the people in building the wall. He joins right in with them. He takes no position of privilege there. And finally, Nehemiah even puts out of his own finances again to help feed many people, 150 people he's feeding, as well as any visitors and and dignitaries that might come to Jerusalem. He takes that all on with his own personal expenses. So Nehemiah very much puts his money where his mouth is, right? He walks in exactly the opposite spirit of exploitation. He walks in this spirit of generosity and giving. He actually sacrificially, generously gives to others to make their lives richer. And here, Nehemiah frankly becomes a little bit of a prototype of Jesus. <laughs> he, a little bit of a foreshadowing of Jesus who emptied himself, right? Jesus who emptied himself of his place of privilege as, as God and became a servant and humbled himself even to the point of death so that we might benefit and receive the gift and the riches of life, even life eternal. Jesus is a leader who does not oppress his people. He is a Lord who loves his people even to death. And we need to be like that. Nehemiah was like that. We need to be like that. The actions of Nehemiah, they remind us of Jesus, but they also remind me of a particular friend of mine. I'm going to tell you a quick story of uh, a friend of mine who I worked with to help plant a church years ago. Uh, so I, we were assisting this church plant in getting started. And there was an issue that rose up in the early stages of this church plant. They were uh, maybe a year or so into planting this church. And it, the, the issue arose around the, the, the paying of the church planter's salary. And the leaders of the church, they required full-time work from this church planter because they wanted to get this church up and running quickly but they were only willing to pay him a quarter-time salary. And uh, their justification for this was that, well, he's a church planter. He needs to learn how to sacrifice. And maybe even to be poor is going to help keep him humble and in the right place. And besides, his wife is a nurse, and they'll probably have enough money. (laughs) That was their justification. And the really sad thing was that they actually even had enough of an income in that church to pay him properly. But they wanted to bank that money in order to put it aside to purchase property and then to eventually build a building rather than to pay their pastor. And my friend, he waded right into this issue in front of everybody. And he asked them straight up, he said, do you really think that God will bless that kind of an approach? And then he followed it up by saying, and how is your faith at work? if you can only trust in a plan that you can financially calculate out for yourselves. Don't you think that if God can provide you the money for the property and the building, he can also provide you the money to pay your pastor properly? Is that too big for God to do both? Or can you only see the one? Some of them wanted to resist every argument. There was obviously an internal struggle. They kind of knew they were doing wrong, but they couldn't you know, grasp the the boldness that it would take to do what was right here. And I could see that my friend was getting a bit angry. (laughs) And after a little bit of time, we all decided, okay, let's just take a time of silence and prayer. We came out of that prayer, and my friend said, 
I believe God is telling me something to do. And he says, I want to make you guys an offer. If you pay your pastor properly, I will pay half of his salary for a full year. If you promise to not reduce his salary after that year. And if you don't want to take me up on this offer, he said, and he actually gave quite a bit to the church already. It wasn't even his church. He just wanted to support a church plant. He said, if you don't take me up on that offer, I'll discontinue my giving and I will transfer it over to another church plant instead. It's up to you. You can make the call. Well, the people were actually quite overwhelmed by the generous offer that he made and they accepted it and and suddenly became incredibly humbled. (laughs) And there were even a lot of tears of repentance that just burst out at that point in time as well. You see, I think the point that I want to make, like Nehemiah and my friend did, when we see and recognize injustices taking place, God would have us stand up and call them out. He would. To call them out lovingly, calmly, not in a rage, but to call them out. But that's not all. That's not all. When God reveals to us those kinds of injustices, I think that as Christians, God is also at the same time calling us to begin to step sacrificially in to respond, to help make it right too. As we realize the injustice, He's also laying upon our hearts the the calling and, and the burden to begin to sacrificially contribute to making this right as well, even at our own expense. The last thing that I want to turn attention to is this idea of the fear of God that plays into this passage. It's mentioned twice. In verse 9 and in verse 15, Nehemiah references this concept of the fear of God. <laughs> have you ever heard that? <laughs> Someone says, I put the fear of God in you, or don't you, have, don't you fear God when you're doing something wrong? That's kind of the thing that, that Nehemiah is raising here. And in verse 9, he speaks to the nobles, and he says to them, you ought to do what's right. You really ought to do what's right and walk in the fear of God, of our God. And what he's saying is if, if, you, if you knowingly are doing something wrong, you've got some reason to fear. Especially if you're abusing other people in the process, you've got some reason to potentially fear God. Be careful there is what he's saying. And then in verse 15, he actually applies the same thing to himself. He says that he did what he did in, in not collecting the taxes because he knew it would be a burden on the people that they couldn't bear and it wouldn't be right. And he says he does it because he fears God. Because if I knowingly step into doing something that I know is wrong, I have some cause and reason to fear God. And because I fear God, I'm not going to do it. You see, for Nehemiah, he realizes that God sees all. That's really what helps that, that sort of equation work, realizing that God sees all of our actions. Not only does he see our actions, he even sees all of our motives that are behind all of our actions. And that realization keeps Nehemiah on the path of what is good and right, no matter who's watching or not watching, you see? No matter if anybody else ever knows or sees no matter how much personal gain there might be in something short-term, if God knows it, it's not worth it. It won't be worth it. There's a saying that, that, that goes, integrity is doing and behaving right and honestly even when no one is watching. That's integrity. Nehemiah obviously has integrity. And what helps him to keep himself in check 
in all the good and right ways is the realization and the truth and the understanding that, that God sees all, right? That God sees all and that God is absolutely right in everything that he calls us to. So just do it. So just do it, whether or not people are watching, right? This is true for us as well. For all of us, all the time. Let me just really quickly list through some scenarios here. If you're an employer, do what's right. Be honest. Be fair in your working conditions. Don't cut legal corners to save a bit. God, will God bless that? And can God bless you if you do it the right way? Of course he can. Do it the right way. If you're an employee, be fair with your time that you're paid for, that you're supposed to give to your, to your employer. You know, one of the things that is distressing to me is the insane amount of workplace theft that takes place in our culture. It's, it's shocking. As an employee, do what's right. At home, if you're a husband, if you're a wife, if you're a parent, if you're a child, you know what, God has a lot of things to say about every one of those roles and what it it looks like when it's done right and good and righteously. And they are challenging, but they're also good and right. (laughs) Do that. Hold to that. If you have neighbors, God says a lot about neighbors in the Bible too. And it can all be summed up in the one phrase, love your neighbor as yourself. That can be challenging sometimes. But it's what we're called to. It's the right thing to do. And it can sometimes, sometimes it has to be the sacrificial thing to do. Do what's right. Forgiving others. The poor, the marginalized, the vulnerable amongst us. The Bible says a lot about them too. The elderly, the widow, the single mom. Those who lead in our community and in our church, God says a lot about those roles too. You know, the higher the calling, the higher the expectation, and the higher the authority a person usually has when they're called to higher things. But along with that comes also the higher potential for abuse if they go in the wrong direction too. And the higher the consequence of the abuse. And therefore also the higher the amount of responsibility and accountability before God as well in those roles. Do what's right. Do what's right. God sees all. And here's the thing too. Not only does God just see all, God is also so willing to to miraculously help us to do what's right and to make the way for us to be able to do what's right. He will even bless us when we do what's right in faith and trusting Him. It's not a bad thing. It's all a good thing. So let's look out for those being exploited or just overlooked or forgotten around us. We need to see it. We need to look at it. And when we look at it, we need to see it. I know sometimes when we look at some stuff like that, it's, it's uncomfortable. <laughs> or it's sometimes maybe more convenient to look the other way. you know. But we need to look at the injustices full on. Soak them in and feel them and be impacted by them. And if need be, maybe even feel anger about them. In the right way. In the right way. And then take counsel with ourselves. Take counsel even among ourselves and with God. How should we respond? 
And you know what? When you find injustices that are taking place and you realize them and you've looked at them, doing nothing is almost never the right thing to do. <laughs> we got to get involved. Pray. And allow our prayers to direct our actions then. And then I'm telling you, I think the thing we also need to do is to be prepared to get sacrificially involved. To be a part of the solution as God directs us. I'm going to close now with just three things. Three little points of application. Immediate application for us as a church. Right here. Right amongst us. So the first one is very small. It's not, it's not a case of an abuse at all. But what it really has been is a case of, of people being somewhat left out. So we have been forced to run these services digitally over the internet. Do you realize that we actually have a few people in our church who have no access to this? They can't come to the church to be a part of it because they're not allowed to. They don't have computers or they don't have Wi-Fi or they don't have the capacity to know how to run that stuff. There's a handful of them that we've been struggling with. How can we help them? Because we've got to care for these people. They're our charge. So what we're doing is starting this Tuesday, right? This Tuesday starting uh, in the morning, help me out with the time, 10.15. Those people, we've invited them to come to the church at 10.15. We're not going to hold a gathering because we're not allowed to do that. But what we're going to do is hold viewings of the service and play it for them in either individually or in small groups of just two or three. And we'll, we'll, we'll retain all the COVID guidelines, right? All of them. And, but it's a way for us to be able to bring the message, bring the care, bring the love, bring the word, bring the support to them too. Because they need it. And they've been missing that. So that's one thing that we're doing. Pray for us in that. And pray for them as they come. And listen, this is significant for them. They've been going without this for some time, for too long. So we're going to do that. The second thing, we've got a slide up here, is uh, the needy in our community. Um, and we, uh, there it is, the bread of life, right? Our church supports that, right? Can someone verify? Yeah, we do. I thought so. Our church supports the bread of life financially. Uh, I know George is very in involved with them. I think he's even on their board. And uh, they do a lot of the work in this community for the needy and for those who are down and out, hurting in all kinds of ways, from emotionally to physically, even issues of hunger. I am going to find out more about the society. I am going to personally uh, go with George and get involved and, and find out what I can do more. <laughs> Is there anything more that we can do that I personally can do? And as I learn about that, I'm going to share it with you. I'll probably share it in my little video updates, but I'm going to share it with you, what's going on and what we can do to help. I'm actually going... Um, on a drive this coming Thursday night um, with Scott, who is former RCMP officer. He kind of knows the town. He knows some of the dark places of the town. <laughs> we're going to drive intentionally into, he says, about five of the dark places in town, and we're going to walk through them and pray. And as we walk through them and pray, I'm going to also ask God, what can we do? <laughs> what can we do? As, as we're looking at it and starting to realize some of the pains around us, what can we do to help? And I'll report back to you on that as well. And now there's one last thing. There's still the matter of those 15,000 children that die every day of starvation, mostly in Africa. Next slide. Um, Mercy Touch Ministries. Church supports that too, right? Yes. 
And I thought that was the case. I was pretty sure that was the case. So Mercy Touch Ministries. The next slide. Let's go to the next slide. This is a, a organization that helps children, orphans in Africa. It helps them get education. It helps them get food. It helps them get started with small loans. It helps them in their families. It helps them with water and essential things like that. All sorts of things. Uh, we support that as a church to not a tremendous amount, but you know, we, we support them. So I was... Contrast this picture with the other picture of the child with the vulture behind her. This is what could be. This is what should be. This is what we can help happen. This is what Mercy Touch is doing. Changing the lives of these kids. I, I believe they're all orphans. And, and giving them incredible hope. This is, this is lighting a candle in the darkness. And this is what we're doing as a church. And I, I just want to call us to perhaps press more into that. So yesterday, I was in my office, I looked up Mercy Touch Ministries, I went to their website, and right on the very first page of their website, there is this donate button. I clicked the donate button. It took me to a page, and I very simply followed through with making a $20 donation. And I even got to choose to what sort of ministry it would be focused towards. I chose education of children. Because if anything's going to save the continent of Africa, it's going to be educating those children, right? That's going to make the biggest difference in their future. So that's where I put it towards. But you know what? Maybe I can do that every month. Maybe I can push that button and sign up for a monthly gift. And, I'm gonna, if I, and maybe a lot of you probably are doing that already. If not with Mercy Touch, probably with some other organization. But I'm going to challenge us to maybe, can we, as God raises this passage up in our minds and our hearts, can we maybe press more into this? Is God sort of saying, hey, I, I, I'm calling you to be a bigger impact. <laughs> I'm calling you to be a bigger force of good and light in, in these dark areas. I want you to prayerfully consider that and uh, maybe match my $20 <laughs> if it's not too bold for me to say so. Uh, but really, more than that, do what God compels you to do. That's what I'm really asking you. I did it because God was compelling me to do it. And I'm asking you to consider if God, through all of this thought process that we've walked through this mo morning, isn't perhaps calling you and compelling you to do something more and then to step into it, to step right into it. All right? So that's the word for today. And uh, I'm going to close with a prayer. Lord, I am so grateful for how you've blessed me in my life in so many of the practical, financial, comfortable ways. Lord, you've been good. And uh, I recognize that it's not just I who have attained all that for myself. Lord, there are so many factors in me being able to live the kind of life that, which is frankly quite privileged, that are, were well beyond my control. I, I did not choose to be born in the country I was born in. That was a gift. For some reason, I got to be born here. Uh, I didn't choose the family I got to be born in. That was a gift too. And there's so many other things that just seem to work out by some divine hand that allowed me to benefit and to prosper. And Lord, I know I know that along with that comes some level of responsibility too to help out those who are less fortunate. And God, as, as we as a church family uh, think through this, I pray that you would just move us in our hearts too to look and to see where the hurts are and then to contribute and to make a difference and to be redeemers and to be contributors and gifters of life and of good things. Lord, help us to do what's right in those things. In Jesus' name I pray uh, for your guidance in that. Amen. God bless you.